All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. So, uh, today we have our good friends, uh, Dr. Mary Jane Weiss and Dr. Tom Zane, here to talk us, with us about the new ethics code that I believe goes into effect 2022. But before we have uh, Mary Jane and Tom introduce themselves, I'm going to have Joe going over the boring logistics of the show. Take it away, Joe. Thanks for that. I'm glad I get to cover the boring stuff. Um, if you're catching this live and you'd like to ask any questions to the panelists, uh, you can using the Q&A option. Uh, in that option, you can ask questions anonymously if you don't feel comfortable attaching your name to that, but you still like to get an answer to your question. That's a wonderful way to do that. Uh, if you're listening to this via the podcast, well, sorry, you can't ask questions. Should have caught it live. Uh, maybe you can come next time. Uh, if you want CEUs for this rant, you can purchase and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, just add it to your cart and answer questions about the opening and closing keywords, and you can get an ethics CEU for this one. I'll go ahead and put it in a chat box for those who are attending this live, but our opening keyword is going to be behave. I wonder and... what the closing word is going to be. <laughs> So uh, yeah, is that all the, the boring stuff? I think so, unless there's anything else you can add. Yeah, now we'll get to the fun stuff, um, which I get to start off with. So I think both uh, Mary Jane and Tom, I know both Mary Jane and Tom have been on the show before, but you know, people don't listen to every episode, you should. But if you haven't heard them speak, uh, go listen to the previous episodes. But I do want them to start off by just introducing themselves a little bit and maybe in that introduction just talk about how they got into ethics uh, a little bit and then we will go ahead and start having our discussion. Okay, um, I'll start. I'm Mary Jane Weiss. I'm always happy to um, be here and to be with Justin and Joe. So thank you for having me again. I'm the Executive Director of Programs in ABA and Autism at Endicott College. Um, where I work alongside Justin and Joe. And um, I have been interested in ethics really for my whole career. And it kind of precedes even being a behavior analyst. I was originally trained as a clinical psychologist and um, was trained in that ethics code and had a really deep interest in it all through my graduate training. And um, I maintained that when I came over to behavior analysis and have done a lot of volunteer work uh, in my career in ethics capacities and um, really excited to talk about the new code and have a great deal of enthusiasm for the changes that are embedded in it. So I think it'll be a great conversation. And uh, my name is Tom Zane. Hello, everyone. Um, I work at the University of Kansas. I I'm the, currently I'm the director of the online programs and behavior analysis at uh, Kansas. Uh, we have a, 
um, an RB online RBT course. We have a um, and our online uh, master's degree in ABA. And then we also have a, a certification program there that we all run um, run those programs. I don't remember how I got started in ethics. Um, been a lifelong behavior analyst, of course, doing both academic work and clinical work. Um, and I don't remember how I did, but kind of like many of us, we just kind of go where uh, our interests go and where the reinforcers are. And um, I, found, I have found it fascinating and wonderfully gratifying to uh, think about ethics and uh, work with John Bear, Bailey and Mary Jane Weiss on ethical issues. Uh, both Mary Jane and I are part of the ethics hotline that John runs, which is a very popular one. And according to him, he keeps getting increasing numbers of calls um, regularly. And so um, I'm very passionate about our field too. Uh, behaviorism is a wonderful sort of discipline and philosophy. And I think we have to protect our field. And certainly with all the work we do with fragile populations, it's very important to uh, make sure that we behave ethically um, um, when it, in everything that we do. So um, I don't remember how I got into it, but I'm um, happy to be in it and I do what I can in that area. So, Well, you're here now, so we appreciate and it. I couldn't be in a better place. So. <laughs> well, I know every year at ABBA, you are at least for the past few years, I don't know how long you all have been doing it, but there's um, an ethics panel that uh, you two and, and John Bailey participate in. And I think that's one of my, if anyone can make ethics fun, uh, go, or if you don't think ethics can be made fun, go to that talk. Um, and not only will it be fun, but it's also so educational. So I know I always add that to my list. So I appreciate you all doing that and being here to talk to us about ethics as well. Let me just jump. Well, let me just jump in there. Uh, I appreciate those comments about the panel. I just wanted to let everyone know kind of the format of that. It was Bailey's idea, but what we do is each of us come up with two or three cases, but we don't broadcast them beforehand. So when each of us stands up and gives the ethical dilemma case, that's the first time uh, we're hearing it along with the audience. So what you see at that panel are each of us um, presenting off the cuff. We're reacting off the cuff, the way we think through the problems. Uh, and so it's kind of a different way of doing it rather than having a prepared talk. So I appreciate you mentioning that, Joe. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to do it. My recommendation though is get there early. There will not be a seat left in the house. If you remember what live conferences are, <laughs> we had to actually dress up and go sit next to people and you know be there, um, not on Zoom. Or, or any other platform, get there early. It is always uh, shoulder to shoulder and uh, people sitting on the floors. And sometimes I believe that you have to move rooms because mm -hmm. it always gets sold out. So go, get there early, get a snack and wait for an hour beforehand. You won't be uh, sorry you did. Hopefully in next... Boston we'll be live again. That's right, 2022 Beantown. I think Boston was my first ABAI. And Joe, mm. was it yours? It was mine too. Yeah. Really? Mm. Yeah. Joe, Joe and I follow each other. You're so back. young. You're so young. <laughs> um, I think I feel older than you. So uh... <laughs> that's impossible. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, but 
what we brought you here today to talk about was the the new ethics code that is going to be going into effect January 1st, 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm just, I was interested on what your thoughts are on the big changes of this version, because there, there are several. Uh, and I didn't know if there are any that you would like to highlight or discuss to start things off. Mary Jane, why don't you take it? You know it more than I do. Okay, sure. Um, I would say that um, it's really hard to choose what I really um, would consider the biggest change. I'm going to focus on two that I think are tremendously relevant and important. The first one is the introduction of core principles. And um, I am very, very heartened to see that included in our ethics code. It mimics what a lot of other fields have done in terms of having some overarching ethical mandates that serve as a framework for how we think through interpretation of the subsections of the code. And um, I, I think it was really important for us to include them. And uh, I really like the things that they emphasize. So um, benefiting others, integrity, um, ensuring competence and treating others with compassion, dignity, and respect are the four core principles that have been embedded. And um, I, I'm very, very happy to see that there. In a way, you know, I wonder sometimes why were we slower as a field to do that? But I, I think it might be because it is a little bit of a different function to kind of frame an ethics code with some of those core principles or value-based statements, kind of aspirational aspects to the code. Um, but I think the messaging is really important in terms of always thinking through our courses of action with those primary obligations in mind. So I really like seeing that and some of the language contained within those, I also um, think represent real change. So there's language in there about, um, about cultural diversity and cultural competence, for example, especially in terms of ensuring our competence. And um, there's some new language in there too that supports um, the assessment of personal choice in treatment under compassion, dignity, and respect. So there are some threads that you see embedded there and also throughout the code, um, but particularly in the area of cultural responsiveness and treating diverse populations, which I think really represents a, a major seismic shift. And then the other thing that I um, am very happy to see is the inclusion of a decision tree model for the management of complex dilemmas, providing all of us with a, a, a framework, a systematic manner of thinking through the process of finding our way to a decision or a path. And it, it incorporates a lot of aspects of problem solving in terms of thinking of many courses of action and anticipating the consequences of those different courses of action. Um, and again, that is um, a common approach, not just in behavior analysis, but across disciplines for the management of ethical problems. And I think its inclusion as part of the code is, um, is a great message to all of us as practitioners about some of the strategies we can use when we're faced with dilemmas that are not simply solved by looking into the code. 
and, and really that require the examination of contextual variables. Um, from a code section um, perspective, I'm really happy to see how many times cultural diversity and inclusion comes up, how much collaboration is emphasized much more specifically and explicitly than it has been in previous versions, um, a thread of compassionate care. So that probably sums up the things that I thought were most notable and it completely mirrors the conversations we've been having in the field over the past few years, I think about what some of the needs are, what some of the areas of practitioner training that are of greatest urgency. Um, and so I, I think it's a good revision in terms of reflecting some of the, the biggest practice challenges we've been discussing. So um, I think mostly similar to Mary Jane on that. Um, first, I think it's very difficult to develop ethical codes and I give the BACB credit for, they always are evolving and moving forward. So this is another great attempt or not attempt, another great um, iteration of moving our field forward with ethics. Um, in terms of big changes, I agree with Mary Jane about the core principles. I mean, that's, that starts out right with that and it kind of sets the occasion for understanding the rest of the code in that, uh, I think she said framework. So that, that's a big change um, as well. Um, the glossary, that's a new change, I believe. I don't think we had one before. Mm -hmm. And so defining terms to make sure everybody understands at least the way the uh, code is defining terms, I think uh, probably um, helps people understand more similarly uh, what is talked about in terms of those that, that terminology. Um, it also looks like more like other ethical codes. So I, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, um, but it seems like it's ref the writing of it is more refined. Um, and like Mary Jane said, the, the attempt at the ethical decision-making um, steps is a nice addition. It gives everyone a minimal framework to think about how to approach and resolve ethical dilemmas. I think there's other resources out there. I know Mary Jane's working on um, decision-making charts and things like that. And then the Bailey and Birch book um, has a pretty comprehensive um, section on how to think through and the variables you need to consider when you're um, confronted with an ethical problem and things you need to think about. So um, those resources are, exist. Uh, I'm glad it's in the code here to uh, um, basically have a, a structure for people to think about. Um, what I miss from this code is the details. I think the previous code, I loved how there was each section with subsections listing exactly what we need to do or not do. Um, I think that was articulated more uh, concretely in the previous code. I think everything is in here, but it just was, to me, it was laid out uh, in a way that, that helped me uh, find, um, uh, to respond to issues better, so. Um, but it's a step forward. Um, it's, a, it's an improvement, a, a continued evolution and a refinement, which should give real good guidance to behavior analysts moving forward. Right. You know, I think one thing as I'm listening to you both talk, um, I'm thinking you guys aren't only great ethicists, you're great teachers and trainers of young people who want to become BCBAs and who want to become in the field, whether that's in clinical practice 
or whether that's in academia in your roles as professors uh, in Endicott and at KU. And, and I'm, I don't know, Tom, if you teach an ethics course. Uh, mm -hmm. I know Mary Jane does mm -hmm. at Endicott or at least the doctoral level. Uh, I wonder how you go about uh, training young BCBAs or people becoming BCBAs, wanting to become BCBAs on the ethical decision-making trees. Like, how do you break that down? Because I know a lot of our listeners will probably have to train others on the ethics code and can use a lot from your, how you imagine you're gonna be doing it. Well, um, it's more complicated this coming year since we have to teach both codes now, which is a bit irritating, but we'll, we'll live. Um, well, it involves a lot of um, scenarios, I'd say, a lot of uh, predicaments that behavior analysts or others can get into and then model for the students the types of the, the issues that you need to think through. I, I referred before to Bailey and Birch book. I really like that structure. Like I said, uh, they uh, present different um, issues one must think about. One I always like is clout. And I think this comes into play a lot with our students. Uh, they might recognize an ethical situation, but as Bailey and Birch say, uh, you have to figure out whether you have the clout to deal with it, right? And so like say you're the, the CEO of an organization might be behaving unethically. You know, an RBT level person or a BCABA person or a new BCBA, um, needs to reflect on whether they have the um, influence to, to try to approach that person and change. Um, but variables like that, so we, we discuss those in class and students then reflect on, well, do they have the cloud? Do they have the experience? Do they have a backup plan? Do they know how to approach the person? And so a lot of scenarios where you talk through um, ways to think about the issue, uh, different responses what can make and the consequences of those those responses. Um, I uh, Bailey and I years ago we started writing some scripts, um, like literally scripts on how to talk about or how to approach someone who might be behaving unethically. And I find those very valuable. Uh, they don't apply to every situation, of course, but I think it's, it's, it's a good framework to get the student give the students a feel for what it's like to approach someone. You get a little bit nervous. You have to kind of think on your feet. We give feedback on how you're responding to the questions or the responses of the person who might be behaving unethically. So I really enjoyed the scripts. It makes it a bit more real. Um, but generally you'd have to expose them to the different ethical situations and talk through the issues that are involved in each and, and then practice different responses. That's a big way that I work on it. Um, I also am a huge fan of scenario-based learning, especially in the context of ethics. I feel like, you know, if there's a meta message about instruction in ethics, it's that context matters and contextual variables change what the best course of action might be. And that is something that's really imperative for um, people to understand and to get used to analyzing in that particular context. So I mentioned before that I'm really delighted that there's now an embedded decision-making process in our own ethics code. And, and I think that that's essential. Um, even before that was there, I think the um, focus on the use of decision trees is incredibly helpful in instructing 
um, students of behavior analysis and how to navigate particular situations. And we have a few from our own um, field that have come really in the last few years. And um, one of them, of course, is Bailey and Birch's whitewater rafting model, right, which kind of helps us assess the severity of what we're dealing uh, with based on a number of different factors that have to be considered in one's response. But we also have some that are kind of specific to certain situations that I think are a terrific resource for people to be introduced to. So you take Broadhead's um, collaboration decision tree. How do I decide what to do about this non-evidence-based practice? What are the questions I need to ask about that, for example? Or you take uh, Newhouse Oystein et al.'s um, rubric for, for collaboration with medical professionals, with prescribing professionals, which essentially is a rubric along two dimensions of is this evidence-based and is this compatible? And what do you do based on which quadrant that falls into? Um, Rosenberg and Schwartz have the ethical radar article decision tree, which starts with that most important moment, right? Which is, I feel like something's not quite right. I tell you that that is a, a feeling we need to listen to. Because when you talk to people much further down the chain, when things have gotten a lot more complex and you ask them, did you have a weird feeling? Did things seem not quite right? The answer is almost always, oh yeah, I thought it was really weird. I, I, I felt strange about that. I thought it was odd, but you know, I didn't know what to do or I didn't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. So following that feeling, digging deeper, you know, making yourself investigate when those feelings occur, I think is really important. Um, so I, I do think that, that introducing students to particular decision trees, um, now we have several in our own field and now we have the one in the code. Before that, I, I think there were also some interesting ones even from psychology that often used that problem solving approach methodically taking people through the process. Try to anticipate the consequences of several different courses of action. Even if you're gonna throw those out the window and say, this is not a good idea, it's still instructive to go through that problem solving process. So I think one kind of meta strategy is decision trees and decision-making models. Another one is what Tom talked about and which I couldn't agree more with and which I think can be applied with um, decision tree models, which is scenario-based instruction. I also think we have to focus on resources. What are the things one can do? What are the places one can go? What should one do when one needs to learn more about a particular thing? And where are the, the, the things that can help us through this? In some cases, those are actual websites or printed resources or articles. Um, one that I really like in the context of non-evidence-based intervention is Autism New Jersey's parent-friendly resource, which um, is the treatment guidelines for autism, which have red, yellow, and green light procedures. Um, because I think it, it helps us understand what's the level of evidence for this, what's the level of risk for this. Um, and if somebody comes to you and says, let's do a red light procedure, your answer is no, right? But if someone comes to you and says, let's do a yellow light procedure, 
under certain conditions, you might consider a single, based, uh, single case based assessment of whether or not that particular path is fruitful for this particular learner. But I think knowing those resources, another resource that I think is really important in this context is knowing position statements from other professions so that you could reference some of what um, other fields are saying about a particular intervention. And then there's also the resource of people, you know, teaching them as a strategy. You sometimes need to talk to other people. You're not going to be able to figure this out on your own. You may not be able to figure it out in your setting. You might need to reach out to a mentor, a former professor, an ethics hotline. So you may need some of the resources in the form of people with greater experience and perspective than you have. And I think it's really important to tell people that. I've had to do that a number of times in my own career, and, and I expect I'll do it many times more. So it's not only experience-based um, learning that reduces your need for that. Um, it's also just really being able to rely on one another as a community of behavior analysts who support one another through some of the most difficult situations that we face. As you're yeah. saying, as you're saying, as you were saying that, Mary Jane, I was thinking of like I wrote was writing down buddy up, like a buddy system mm -hmm. for ethics. And like I feel fortunate enough that I can go to either one of you if I'm unsure which way to go, if something is a potential violation, whether it's for myself or, or for someone someone else. And I think the benefit of finding someone is also it takes out that uh, emotionality, I guess mm -hmm. is the best way to describe it. Um, that it's like this person who's not as deeply invested mm -hmm. from it from a different perspective, whether it's you are faced with an ethical scenario that someone's brought upon you, that's going to be emotionally charged, or whether you are looking at someone else's behavior, that that has, you have a certain perspective from that as well. So I, I think that's a really good advice of finding them. I, I love the hotline and that stuff, but I would encourage you guys to find your Mary Jane Weisses and your Tom Zanes and your John mm -hmm. Bailey, mm -hmm. not necessarily Mary Jane Weiss or Tom Zane. Though I'm sure they'd be more than happy to talk to you about ethics, uh, but find find those buddies who you can trust and who you know are objective will give sound advice. Yeah, I would just support that emphatically. Uh, that's a great that's great wisdom, and I think in both of our classes we talk about that and and stress the importance of a sounding board. You know, I talk about it in terms of a sounding board. Don't make decisions on your own, particularly if you're kind of a rookie in the field and you're not experienced and confronting ethical cases, you need to get advice from people. Uh, so very, that's a great, uh, I'm really glad Mary Jane mentioned that. On another related topic, she mentioned different decision tree models and so forth. In the area of research uh, uh, ethics, uh, is it Gary Kucher? I can't remember his first name, is it Gary? Jerry. Jerry, Jerry. Jerry Kucher, K-O-O-C-H-E-R, has written a lot about ethics and research. So he's another really great resource to, to think about. Well, and I love the idea of incorporating those resources into scenarios and actively working out those scenarios for the same reason I love the, the ethics symposium that you all do. You get to see live problem solving happening. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're working through those scenarios, you get to live problem solve with other colleagues and you get to see which resources might be useful in those situations or not. And I think that's such a valuable tool for anyone to see 
um, how context gets pulled into that and how different people will bring different contexts um, because there is so much gray area um, that context matters so much like what Mary Jane has said. Yeah, it does, really does, yeah, really does. So uh, I have another question. Uh, I, I was going to ask what areas on this version you think have improved, but in asking what's changed, you, you kind of uh, threw some stuff out there that you think has improved. Uh, but with regards to the decision-making, um, uh, the ethical decision-making guidelines or steps as they call them, I'm wondering if there's any um, repertoires or skills that you think are important to train people in to know how to use those decision-making models more effectively and less of a reliance on these are the steps that I have to do, but more of a, here's a, here's a guideline or a, a series of guidelines that can help you um, resolve anything that might come up or help guide you to some resolutions as opposed to just, all right, I did step one, cross that off. Now I've done step mm -hmm. two, cross that off. You want to go first? You want me to go first? You can go first. Okay, I'm just starting making things up. So I wish you would have gone first. But <laughs> um, the different uh, decision making models are important, like Mary Jane was saying. I think what I do is I, um, well, now with this code, I'll work with the students on these steps, and then we'll work with Bailey and Birch on their steps. And I think by going through the different steps and, and flow charts, if you will, from different um, ethicists, I think one develops some generalized skills. They kind of start getting a feel for different ways to respond to different situations. So just practice, the practice the different uh, guidelines, the steps, the flow charts uh, across different ethical scenarios. I think you build a more uh, what would you call it, fluent or, or uh, flexible uh, ways of reacting to different situations in the future. Okay. I was going to say that I think um, you want to build up a kind of like a robust skill set, right? Something that really has breadth, has depth. So I think the point that Tom just made about practice is really important. And it's not just in the context of being a student in a behavior analysis ethics class. I think that we have to keep honing that skill set throughout our own practice. And I think we should practice those skills in scenario-based learning contexts mm -hmm. throughout our careers. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of places do integrate ways to keep that skill set going. You know, they may have... Um, you know, ethics dilemmas of the month or, you know, things of that nature or um, continuing ed events around ethics where people bring their sample dilemmas. I think that's really important. I also think it's good to be able to think through those things, not just when you're actually in an emotionally charged, difficult context, but also to keep practicing mm -hmm. that as, um, as just another one of our important and essential skill sets and not just when, you know, real um, crises are happening around us. But that gets to a point that I was thinking about when Tom was talking, which is, I think maybe the most important component of that is a community, a community of behavior analysts that are going to be able to help you sort through the unique challenges that you have in your setting. 
And I really believe that we all need that community. And many of us are handed that as part of our jobs. You know, we work in a behavioral, um, you know, wonderful setting that uh, has similarly minded people. I think the greatest challenge and also the greatest vulnerability for practicing behavior analysts is isolation. I think if you are the sole behavior analyst, if you're surrounded by people who were not similarly trained, who don't know our ethics code, I think that the vulnerability is vastly increased. And so I think that's important. Like that strategy we need to teach people is you have to be able to identify who your community is, who's supporting you. And if it isn't handed to you, as a function of your life circumstance, I think you need to create it. And I think you need to think about where are you contacting our worldview? Where are you contacting our way of approaching everything, including practice dilemmas? And to kind of throw into that mix, um, I would go back to the point about um, exposing students and everyone to different ways of thinking about ethics. In particular, I would talk about, um, you know, there's some people in our field that are less gray about ethics, and there's some people who are more gray about ethics. And I think it's very important to expose the students to that range of color, I guess, uh, because uh, uh, people who are really gray have different ways of thinking about ethics and the people who are less gray um, have different ways of thinking about ethics and to expose the students to all that is very important. For example, Mary Jane talked about the red light, yellow light and green light example. Well, what I like to say about that is I'm from a very small town in Iowa. We were, our town was so poor that we just had one stoplight. And uh, one year the stoplight broke and we were so poor, we could only afford a stoplight with a red light and a green light, right? And so the way I look at that is if the procedures that we're thinking about are green lights, great. If not, if they're not green, they're red. So anyway, obviously, uh, we could tempt at a joke. But different perspectives uh, students need to uh, uh, hear to let them kind of learn which way they would go. Like, are they going to be more gray? Are they going to be less gray? And that's valuable for them to learn as well. By the way, one of the strategies that I teach master students um, in terms of long-term um, problem solving and management of ethical challenges is to make sure that when they do approach people, like when they need to go to their resources, when they're reaching back out to a mentor, uh, that they should go to more than one. Mm -hmm. And my reason for saying that is exactly the point that Tom just made, which is that we don't all think identically. I mean, we think identically about some big ticket items. We could get 100% IOA on a bunch of things that we could throw out. But then there would also be a bunch of things that Tom and I, for example, right now would say slightly different things about, right? And it doesn't mean that I'm right and Tom's wrong or vice versa. Right. But it, it does. I think it's really fascinating because if you were to keep talking to Tom and I, you mm -hmm. would at the end of those conversations come up with some areas of agreement. Mm -hmm. There would be elements of our responses 
that would be in 100% agreement. And I feel like um, if you were the person consulting both of us, you could be pretty sure then that those components are really good components of what you ought to do next because you got agreement from two experts about that area. And so I think it's really good as a long-term strategy to teach people, talk to people that, you know, talk to various people, talk to people that might come at it from different angles as you sort through what your options and path might ultimately be. I think that's actually evidence or displayed at the ethics panel that you mentioned, Joe. I think that 98% of the time, uh, Bailey Weiss and I would come down on the same action. But we come to it maybe from different ways. And maybe there'd be a slight variation, but still we're basically coming down on the same conclusions and that something would have to be done and we basically agree on what has to be done. So like you said, Joe, uh, that panel, demonstrates different ways of thinking about the ethics, but um, a diversity of, uh, of opinions and people, like Mary Jane was saying, is very important. It gives that whole range of views, but I think most of the views will eventually um, agree upon or have a consensus about what to do about a particular problem. That was a lovely discussion, and knowing now that your town only had uh, one stoplight, it's similar to my town that only had one stoplight, of red and green as, as well. Um, uh, I'm gonna do the first shout out and that's to Missy Olive, Dr. Missy Olive, who's an incredible behavior analyst, uh, mentor and someone that I look up to as well. Uh, she wrote, uh, I love the notion of ethics fitness that Rosenberg and Schwartz described. We have to keep practicing scenarios to get good, uh, get good at making those decisions. So I just wanted to reinforce our audience participating today. And thank you, uh, Dr. Olive. Uh, one thing that uh, came to mind as you both were talking is keep honing the skill set and exposing to ethics. And I remembered Mary Jane earlier, obviously you said the thing that you really like the improvement on or that you like seeing in the new code was the cultural diversity and cultural competence uh, part sections of it. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on if we as a field should start requiring that to be uh, separate CEUs, kind of like we've done with ethics and we've done with supervision. Would it be valuable that we're starting to make that a requirement of our overall CEU uh, collection process? I would love that. I mean, um, I think that I, and I, I think that seems likely, I mean, I don't have any inside information. <laughs> Um, but I, I think it, it looks like that could happen based on the amount of value and attention it's getting in the field. And I think that would be a good thing. I think it's one of many areas that they should be offering specific CEs for. So sure. Yeah. You want to tell me what the other areas are? Yeah, what are, I feel like oh. there was something there. What are, yeah. what are well, you hoping No, 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 I wasn't like trying to prompt a question to have me talk about it. <laughs> but but um, I think uh, our philosophy, <laughs> radical behaviorism, I think we should have special, uh, unique CEUs for uh, more training on that. Evidence-based practice, I think, is another important one that that is such an important issue in our field. So those are just two that come to mind. 
I, I agree on all points. I do feel like that's the direction this is probably going to go. And I feel like anytime the BACB puts an emphasis on specific CEUs, mm -hmm. it shows the value of that mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. by the organization um, that then um, translates to what people might view as valuable in mm -hmm. their practice. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would view that as improvements. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm, I guess I'm wondering, are there, you've talked about some of the things that you think are improvements. Uh, in the new ethics code, are there any areas that you think would still require improvements, such as requiring specific CEUs and things like um, diversity and cultural uh, humility and radical behaviorism? Are there any other areas that you think that might be improved? Tom? I know that was a big question. Well, I mentioned before, uh, I, I basically know. Uh, I mentioned before that um, I loved the bulleted details of the earlier code. Well, that information's in the new code, but I just like the layout of that. Um, no, I, I, I don't think there's anything that I've tacted that uh, is missing. It's all in there in one form or another. So I can't think of anything in particular that should be improved on. You know, there's, there's, there's the old asterisk thing that we still have going on, but um, other, that, other than that, no. By that, do you mean the disclaimer? You're right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, that still is a burr under my saddle. But, um, before you answer, Mary Jane, I assume just in case people aren't as fluent as you two, the disclaimer is if you're doing other interventions that aren't conceptually aligned uh, with right. behavior analysis and that you can put a disclaimer on it as. Uh, right. So that you would have to um, disclose. That, that when you are doing that procedure, you are not doing it under the umbrella right. of your behavior analytic credential. It is not a behavior analytic um, procedure. You can't bill for it as part of an insurance right. entitlement for behavior analysis. It has to be separated that way on all your written materials and on your website, et cetera. Um, right. And my understanding of that is um, that there are you know, limitations to what they can um, influence about what people choose to do professionally. Um, and, and that is one thing they can do is, is control what you use your BCBA credential for. Um, and that, um, anyway, that was an addition to the previous professional and ethical compliance code to clarify how we all should navigate circumstances where BCBAs might be using procedures that are not evidence-based. And I think right. Tom would love to see it much more intensely worded. And, and, as, we... and as a shameless plug, I would encourage everyone to listen to a previous podcast with uh, Joe, Justin, and, uh, and Tom about One World View, because I think we get into good detail about the importance of having a one world view as as behavior analysts. And I know it's something Tom's passionate about. And I think all of the panelists here are passionate about mm -hmm. being conceptually yeah. systematic with our science. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think, you know, even for those of us that, you know, support the disclaimer and understand the um, rationale for it, it is, right, it's a stretch. It's difficult to imagine one being able to remove one's behavior analytic framework in order to go do something antithetical to it. I think we all share that um, mm -hmm. challenge. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up, right? It doesn't, 
seem possible. Right. Doesn't. Yeah. Well, and I think the, the challenge comes in is does that lead to potential other challenges or other things like promoting um, non-evidence-based practices or um, some other areas that that might might end up at. I think that's not necessarily the concern that you could take your hat off, which that's that's surprising mm -hmm. to me that you can take your behavior analytic hat off and then put on this other hat that's completely antithetical to behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. But when that leads to potential ethics violations or um, impeding your practice to be as effective as you can. Uh, so I guess uh, it are there any other areas of the, the new code or the update that you think might make ethics violations less likely as opposed to something like that that might lead it, lend itself to potential ethics violations? And I think the decision tree or the decision making um, is probably an, a good example of something that might make ethical violations less likely because we're addressing them in a more uh, somewhat proactive way. Um, but I'm wondering if there's other areas in the update that might also lend itself to less ethical violations happening in the future. Well, clarity I, I, is, oh, go ahead, Mary Jane. I was just going to say, I think that the specificity that they've brought to mm -hmm. social media mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, testimonials. I don't know that it's the, you know, that this iteration is the final permutation that we'll all land on. I think we might still be in a shaping process of clarity and guidelines for individuals and organizations. But I do see that um, more attention on specificity is being given in ways that um, I think are a great advance. So for example, the language around, um, you know, what you can do as part of grant submissions in terms of that, um, you know, that being a kind of context in which more information might be shared and things of that nature. I, I, I think we still have a long way to go. You know, we're all still as a society um, and as a field grappling with some of these things, but I do see an attempt to be more specific about what are social media platforms, what are we um, defining as different kinds of um, electronic behavior, and what are the guidelines around those. I, I think that that's an area for growth, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that changes a lot more in the years to come. Um, with increasing levels of specificity. But I do see that what is happening already reflects an attempt to provide a bit more support to practitioners trying to navigate it. I think the specificity helps a lot to reduce uh, possible ethical violations. Like you said, Joe, the inclusion of the decision-making tree uh, gives some specific strategies to behavior analysts. And I think they're then more likely to implement those. Uh, that then should lead to a lower likelihood of ethical problems. Plus, um, the code, um, in so many words, uh, requires, us, requires us to reflect carefully on whether we are behaving ethically. So if, uh, if we uh, if someone brings to me that I, uh, a charge of me behaving unethically, the code demands us to objectively assess that, right? Uh, and the code supports that self-assessment. And uh, I know that both of us teach our students 
look at if someone in the future accuses you of behaving unethically, don't get defensive, don't lash out, don't ignore it. Do a very careful assessment of the of the charge. Uh, is there truth to it? And if there's a possible truth to it, stop it. Do something that fixes it. Maybe it's not a real ethical problem in your mind, but behave in an ethical way, right? Solve the problem, shut it down. And so by having that, again, emphasized in this code, I think that adds to um, the possibility that there'll be fewer ethical um, uh, problems if we take that to heart and agree to look inside ourselves to make sure that we're not behaving unethically and to fix it if there possibly could be. Uh, we might be doing that, right? So, Yeah, well, I think that's a, a, a wonderful point, and it emphasizes that one of the essential repertoires to be able to behave ethically would be self-assessment skills. Mm -hmm. uh, so in terms of how we can use those decision-making models mm -hmm. a little bit more effectively or behave more ethically mm -hmm. generally, uh, being better at self-assessing and, and developing those self-assessment skills. I forgot to mention another great new addition is a focus on um, awareness of our own biases, awareness of our own um, deficits that is emphasized in several different places and also um, the obligation to help our supervisees possibly identify their own biases and blind spots. I, I think that also, that again is that thread, especially in the cultural um, diversity, equity, and inclusion area. Um, but it's a, it's a, it, it, it's, it occurs throughout the code in a number of different contexts and exactly emphasizes that value. So we have a question from the audience member from a, a rising uh, star in our, in our field, Jessica Piazza. And she says, love everything in this session. How do you think the inclusion of core principles might change instructing students and trainees, if at all? Um, I think it needs to be part of what we ask them to do in scenario-based learning. Are there core principles that are relevant here? If so, which ones and why? I think it actually needs to be something that is um, embedded into the application piece of what we do. Um, in my opinion, people need to learn how to go reference that and think about which one of those is relevant and why. So I would embed it into scenario-based learning. How about you, Tom? Oh, totally true, yeah. Uh, I, I think those core principles are like a foundational piece of ethics training. So the students have to become very familiar with them. And then uh, when presented with a scenario, like Mary Jane said, you. You refer back to them. How is the scenario connected back to them? Uh, understand that and then go on with, you know, delving deeper into the problem and what other questions and issues you have to deal with. But yeah, definitely a core piece of the training, very foundational. Well, and it being up front and at the top, along yes. with the glossary, yeah. really yeah. sets the context uh, right. for looking right. through the rest of it right. uh, and helps you interpret some of those things that are in those, in the sub-bullet points a little bit better. That's true. Yeah, it was organized nicely, right? 
Although I, I did notice that in their definition of behavior analysts, um, it doesn't necessarily include anybody that might be an RBT or pursuing their RBT mm. or anyone who's not certified or not on their way to being certified. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, good question. I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah, but because I know, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I, I view behavior analysis as a worldview and you can't necessarily certify someone in a worldview. Um, but I also understand what, why they might have needed to define it for that, for the purposes of the code um, and the practice of behavior analysis. But it was something that, that made me question just a little bit. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess it's like, who can they hold accountable? for sure. their adherence to the code mm -hmm. you know i don't know um, why rbts wouldn't be held accountable but but i don't know i don't know their thinking behind it there are ethical expectations for them as well but sure. they're of course at a different level of responsibility mm -hmm. as practitioners with more oversight needless to say so uh, I'm not sure if we're going to have enough time to cover this entire question, um, but I'll go ahead and throw it out anyways. Uh, I hate to open a can of worms here, but I will. Um, what are the issues with BCBAs posting in Facebook groups that ABA is abusive or that non-behavioral things are the function of behavior and that our typical functions, for example, attention, escape, et cetera, are outdated? Say it one more time. Sure. Um, what are the issues with BCBAs posting in Facebook groups that ABA is abusive or that non-behavioral things are the function of behavior and that our typical functions are outdated? Well, the second question is, I think, easy to answer. Uh, let's look at the data. You know, I do the research and see if there's some other dimension thing that's a function. So uh, we shouldn't be talking as if uh, things are a function unless the data um, say so. So that's an easy one. The first one, uh, I think it's awful that behavior analysts would be trashing our field, um, That's a, that we're abusive. Maybe talk specifically about specific cases, of course, and that would be certainly appropriate and important to do. If there's a certain individual or a certain school or something that's abusive, certainly. But that the science is abusive, I don't understand that. And I was just gonna say, you know, I think that is definitely a can of worms, whoever opened it up, but I, and I don't pretend to have um, answers, especially to something that complex. And we're in the very beginning stages, I think of even understanding what is this problem that has, um, has become so prominent and I, um, I think that we have a long way to go in terms of understanding the nature of the problem and the situation that we're in, um, in taking responsibility uh, for, in some cases, historic um, experiences of behavior analysis that might have been negative. But I, I think we have to be very careful to maintain some objectivity in this and um and not not engage in emotional responding to the extent that it prevents us from from 
really learning the lessons that need to be learned, having the conversations that need to be had, being able to talk about this from all different perspectives. And, and I think we are failing, and I think we need models of how to do that. And um, I, I hope, I believe that we will get better at it. I think we're in a dark place at the moment around those things. And I think we have to find um, our path, which includes finding um, some, some ability to, to see both perspectives, to dialogue from all angles, but also to stay, um, to stay, to stay science-based and to stay objective in the context ethical, of it. I think our ethical code obligates us to defend our field and to correct misunderstandings about our field. Mm -hmm. So when someone, either a BCBA or a non-BCBA, writes something that is objectively false, I think we behavior analysts have an uh, ethical obligation to respond to that. Um, we wrote an our uh, colleagues and, my, and I wrote an article about a year or two ago responding to some non-behavior analysts who were making outrageous claims about what behavior, ABA does. Uh, one, it's a minor one, but still a, an incorrect statement was that ABA is only good for toilet training. Now, now that's crazy, right? But that puts us in a bad light. And so we felt we were obligated by our code to respond to that. So in Facebook groups, uh, in any situation where BCBAs or others are, are, are making untruthful claims, claims that are not supported by data, I think we have an obligation to step up and respond to those. And, and I think I should add before we uh, wrap it up, I love the maintain objectivity and, and looking at it and we're not there yet. I think it ties it back in when you see something that you're concerned about, go seek guidance from those people that you trust that uh, are good at ethics and who can be objective and not emotionally respondent. And it is a can of worms and I'm sure we could go on for a couple more hours on that very question and uh, not today, we won't be doing it. Um, before I let Joe give you the closing word that everyone wants for their CEU, I wanna thank uh, Mary Jane and Tom for coming back on the show. Uh, some some uh, shameless promotions. Yeah, we're getting close to our big annual conference, our sixth annual conference. This year we have just an absolute all-star lineup, uh, Amy Gravino, uh, Tim Vollmer, Bridget Taylor, Taylor Nora Syed, Amanda Kelly, aka Behavior Babe, Ellie Kazemi, and Peter Gerhardt. So uh, every every presenter is a is a keynote anywhere else, and probably an opening keynote everywhere else. And they're all in one all star lineup. That is April sixteenth. Sign up today uh, for the conference at Autism Partnership Foundation's uh, Facebook pa or page, I believe, and. With that, we have, we'll be having two big announcements coming in that conference. Joe and I have two big announcements. And just to tease a little bit, the last time we had a major announcement, it was the free RBT training that has had over 130,000 people signed up. So we have two big announcements happening at that conference. Sign up so you know what those announcements are first. With that, I turn it over to Joe.
All right. If you want CEUs for this rant, they can be purchased or downloaded at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Just put in the closing words, uh, our, our opening and closing words, I should say. Our closing word is ethically. Again, that's ethically. I'll go ahead and put that in the chat for everybody who caught this live. Um, and if you're listening on the podcast, now you know the words. We'll see you next week or two weeks from now with Rants with Justin and Joe, where we have four graduates, students, or what is it? It's three graduates. Four, yeah, four, four people who are current masters or PhD or post-masters or post-PhD students. Talking about their experience at graduate school. So I think that will be really uh, good for those of you wanting to get in the field. So with Very that, goodbye from Rants with Justin and Joe. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. Always a pleasure. You guys be safe out there. Yeah, you too. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. See ya.